It's about color equity and not blindness. Like that's one of my huge messages. I don't care who I'm talking to is to try to get rid of that ideology of we need to be colorblind and all of that kind of stuff. Like, no, it's about equity and color equity that I need you to see what I am. And that's a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Hello, and welcome back to the Well Now What podcast. I'm your host, Savannah. So today's guest is the lovely Dr. Lisa Gunderson. In this episode, we chat about her journey becoming a clinical psychologist, how she started One Love Consulting, and how she specializes in providing organizations, anti-racism and equity workshops. And we also discuss the George Floyd movement, as well as the increase of her services during this difficult time. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm here with the lovely Dr. Lisa Gunderson. Dr. Lisa is the founder of One Love Consulting. One Love specializes in providing organizations anti-racism and equity workshops. She specializes in racism against persons of African ancestry. Her motivational speaking centers around the mental wellness and being unapologetically Black while engaging in discussions around white fragility, power, privilege, white supremacy, and systematic discrimination. I'm really excited to chat with her today because I think that the work that she is doing with One Love Consulting is not only incredible, but also extremely relevant to what's going on in the world today. I think it's important to note that you can have good intentions, but still have discriminatory outcome. So most of us think that you need to have negative intentions to be a bad person or to engage in discrimination. So I hope this episode will help educate us, but also help inspire those interested in pursuing a similar career path. So Dr. Lisa, I know you went to the University of Southern California for a bachelor's, a master's, and then a PhD. So was that always a field you were interested in pursuing? It was. um, I took psychology in grade 11, I think it was. And my teacher, I still remember her name, um, Mrs. Price. And she told us there are two things you could do with psychology, um, with a bachelor's degree in psychology. You could either throw really good parties or nothing. So (laughs) um, I knew when I went into university, I actually applied as a declared major in psych. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I added sociology along the way. And I also knew that I would have to go to grad school as well. So I started that kind of process as soon as I got into undergrad. I had started that process of what my application would need to look like to get into graduate school because clinical psych is so competitive. It's like, I think, 3% acceptance or something like that. Um, But yep, always knew what I wanted to do. Wow. Yeah. So how was your overall experience then? So why did you decide to pursue a master's and then a PhD? Was that required? So um, first of all, it's really unusual that I got all my degrees at the same university. I think I was the first USC undergrad they had taken in quite a few years. There were seven people in my grad class. Um, So that's first off for anybody out there. You usually don't go to the same place at all. Second, with Clinical psych, it is a seven-year program typically, and so it's from your bachelor's degree to your PhD, so you can get your master's along the way. So you get your bachelor's degree, and then you apply to the grad program, and like I said, it's about seven years, and part of that process is doing a 
research project. And if you want, you can make it a thesis, which would allow you to get a master's. My idea was that if anything happened and I didn't get to the PhD, I wanted to make sure at least I had a degree that was bigger than the one I went in with. <laughs> so um, I'm like, I'm getting that master's along the way. So that's what you tend to do. For those of you who may already have a master's degree and then decide you want to go into a PhD, for many PhD programs, it won't really save you any time. Um, what it will do is give you kind of a leg up in terms of the work, but in the way that they're interested know that that varies by program and it varies also possibly by country. So there's some distinct differences um, between the U.S. and Canada with regard to that, but a lot of similarities as well. Okay, yeah. And, and what was the process of becoming um, a clinical psychologist? So what are the requirements? Is there specific exams? Do you need to work in a hospital, for example? So how does yeah. it work? Yeah, great question. Um, when you when you go into the program, your first couple of years are doing doing classwork like you probably normally would um, with a set of certain courses, things like clinical psych, abnormal psychology, psychopharmacology, those kind of things. But when you're doing a PhD, it's also research-based. So we have to do a lot of kind of statistics and methodology and um, quantitative analysis, that type, that type of stuff. So you have an arm of coursework that you're doing, but you also have an arm of clinical work because you're being trained to be a clinician as well. So you do a variety of different clinical steps. The first time, for example, um, as you're learning the different ways of being clinician, you work with students who don't have any issues at all. So they ask students to come in to volunteer and you're working with them before they actually let you go to the public. Depending on your university, some will have like counseling clinics and they will have training grounds for you. So that kind of depends. But throughout the kind of first five years, you're doing a variety of different clinical work and academic work, as well as the third arm research. And then for clinical psych, you have to do a year-long practicum. We call it a pre-doc. And that year-long practicum could be, in my case, in the United States, anywhere in the country. You apply to different places. So I apply to hospitals and community centers and university counseling centers. It really depends on what your interests are. And then you apply to them. And then they also interview you. So it's this kind of process. And then you choose who you hope to go with and you hope that they pick you too. I luckily got my first choice, which was University of Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I want to go to Hawaii for a year. <laughs> um, so you leave your home campus is, and you're competing with all the other kind of grad students across the country for these various spots across the country. Um, so it is one year full time um, in my case, it was double that because I was also a counselor in residence. That meant um, I lived in the dormitory halls and was available for after hours counseling with some of my other intern mates. And then after that, that pre-doc, that's what you're required for, for your PhD. In the case of the United States, then you are not ready to then hang your own shingle. After that, you have to do another year of what we call a postdoc. And so in my case, I did that in combination with some research over at UCLA, as well as working with a private practitioner, working with men of racialized backgrounds who had committed um, domestic violence. And so that's another year. Um, after I collected approximately 3,000 hours 
of work, then I was able to sit for um, the test and it's called the EPPP. It's basically an examination of professional psychology. And so um, think of it like the bar. Uh, you spend quite a few months studying for that. There is kind of two components to that. Once you've passed that exam, then you're able to become licensed. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's a quite an extensive process. To it is. Um, yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. yeah. And how did you start One Love Consulting and what was the inspiration behind that? Um, my husband, I was a full-time, uh, tenured faculty member in the United States, and we had decided to move to Canada. We wanted to raise our children here. And when we got here, we didn't have jobs. And so part of it for me was, okay, I, we got to eat. Um, (laughs) and I was asked to teach a course kind of unexpectedly. If you can imagine this, we arrived in Canada at the end of December, like, I think six days before Christmas, um, I did. And then we're in this hotel and I got a call from the community college and they're like, one of our teachers has dropped out. Can you teach like a normal psych? And I'm like, yes. So I'm beginning to teach this course out of a hotel because the house we're renting wasn't ready yet. Um, with a dog and two kids and my husband and we're like, uh, okay. And so I'm teaching out of this hotel and realizing that we need to be able to have more income. So that's pretty much how I started it. I didn't actually want to start it that way. I had been wanting to be very intentional in terms of the kind of work I was doing and so forth, but out of just necessity, trying to get work. Anybody who's immigrated here knows how challenging that is. I started it. And so what happened is I just started talking to various people, going to some very early breakfast meetings, trying to even explain what it is that I do, which was kind of hard for people to understand and just started getting these little kind of jobs and being open to doing anything. So I started doing a little bit of writing here, started doing a little bit of talking here, workshops here, and just kind of building that. So I always had been doing the business part-time just, and then grabbing jobs. At one point I had five jobs. It was (laughs) It was in, including my business. I had four other employers, but it got to the point where I had about 98% repeat customers and I didn't advertise, but the word started spreading. And so I got to the point where um, I was able to just do this full time. Yeah. So you mainly specialize in racism against persons of African ancestry. So why is that? Is that a topic obviously that you're super passionate about? Yeah. Um, it's interesting what I really started focusing on was the issue of isms like, right. Racism was always a focus for me, but racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, just the systemic oppression of, you know, racialized people and other minoritized groups. And especially because Canada is really passive aggressive when it comes to race, the in for a lot to be able to speak about race prior to what is now being termed kind of the George Floyd effect was going, talking about other isms you know, and talking about equity. So being able to talk about gender or sexual orientation or gender identity, and then I go in and then talk about race as well, Um, to the point where I would have to say fragility as opposed to saying white fragility, because people wouldn't even listen to what you were trying to say. Now it's much easier to just straight out say racism and especially anti-Black racism and speaking in that vein. I have for 
over, I guess I'm 50 now. So 30 years, all of my research has been around African American identity, identity around ancestry. My dissertation was around looking at a very popular psychological test called the MMPI and the MMPIA and how it impacts African-American adolescents. And so for me, when I was in graduate school, I had initially gone in for like child abuse, but when we were learning, it's like, well, where's this stuff about us, my group, you know, persons of African ancestry, what, what about us? And there was just a dearth of literature about our groups and not a lot of respect for black psychology and the places and spaces that we come from. And so I always say, if you're any kind of person who's interested in your ancestry and so forth, there's no way you can go to graduate school and not come out doing work in that area. (laughs) That's just not possible. So all of my clinical work, I made sure I worked in racialized and minoritized spaces. So I worked with just adolescent um, African-American Latinx youth. My, the reason I wanted University of Hawaii, so I was, could increase my clinical work with regard to Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And that was the best place to do that because it's the one state where that large group set of communities are the majority. So I've always kind of specialized in those spaces. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've been doing this for 30 years. So it's kind of funny now to see people kind of hopping on the train, I guess I would say. Yeah, for those of us who've dedicated so much of their life to it. Yeah, that's interesting. So you, when you conduct your workshops, you often speak to a variety of different groups from elementary students, university students to adults. So do your presentations um, differ or is it usually the same message that you try to get across? I think it's the same message, but absolutely differs in how it's done. So when I'm working with like grade one and grade two, right, we do this thing where I get everybody in a circle, we put all of our hands in and we do it by shade and we notice the different shades of our skin. And we talk about the why that's that way or why our eyes are different or why are new and that these are all beautiful things. And it's about color equity and not blindness. Like that's one of my huge messages. I don't care who I'm talking to is try to get rid of that ideology of we need to be colorblind and all of that kind of stuff. Like, no, it's about equity and color equity that I need you to see what I am. And that's a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with that. So when talking with young ones, it's about getting them to understand that everybody is, it's, it's beautiful. We don't want people to look the same. And that instead of talking about maybe inequality, we talk maybe about fairness, right? It's important that everybody gets a turn, for example, that everybody should be able to play with the same ball, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. And then as you go up the grades, you you start to speak in, you know, more concrete, different ways about that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, When I'm speaking to primarily white audiences, that's different than when I speak to BIPOC audiences. And so when I'm speaking to white audiences, it's really about them looking internally and kind of trying to get them to understand what does it mean about privilege and power and why you can't feel guilty about that stuff, that we need you to recognize it, A, and then own it, B, and then use it to help in terms of anti-racism, right? We need you to help dismantle the system, but you can't do that if you don't think you're a part of it. So they get a different kind of message than BIPOC persons where we're trying to really talk about validating the experiences and the lived experiences that they've had and that you're not going mad, that these things are real, that you have a right to your feelings, 
that you have the right to figure out how to take care of yourself and what you need to be able to do for your community and for yourself as well. And that your job isn't to take care of white people's feelings, right? And when it comes to anti-Black racism, which is universal, and talking to non-white, non-Black persons, it's really trying to get them to understand how they bought into some of that anti-Black sentiment and how we need to have them kind of shed off and recognize some of that white supremacy that they may be engaging in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So if I have people who are from, you know, who are from various backgrounds that are not white, but not black and using the N word, right? It's like, well, I can use it because I'm not white. Well, no, you can't because you're not black either, right? (laughs) So it's um, trying to understand that and explain how they have also gotten the messaging. And so as we as black people, right? And so part of our work, when I talk to just black groups, is what are the pieces that we have taken in and parts of white supremacy that we need to shed that we're carrying with us? Because we all we all have that. And especially those of us who've kind of gone through the system successfully, um, we've done that partly by taking on some of this stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with racial incidents and racism, it's kind of hard to understand if you haven't been through it yourself. So as humans, we've, we deal with implicit bias. So how do you get that message across? Like you can, you can only say so much, but how can you get people who haven't, let's say like a white group of people, how do you get them to understand that? Um, I do that in two ways. One, when I present, I do a lot of, there's so many examples, unfortunately, right, (laughs) of implicit bias around. So I show a lot of those from elementary school to middle school in various fields and education, advertising. Abercrombie and Fitch did this one set of shirts to get to their Asian American consumers. And it was a series. And one of them showed two caricatures of Asian persons. And it said, two wongs make it white. And they were in a laundry laundromat. And when you look at that, and I explain the idea of how is that possible that somebody saw that, not just one person, a whole group of human beings got together because it went through advertising and all of this stuff, right? And all agreed, that was a good shirt. And they did a series, Walk in Wool and some other things. And then it actually made it to the shelves, And then once it made it to the shelves, they were surprised that Asian Americans were pissed. It's like, really? Um, So part of it is showing just kind of all these examples, ghettoopoly. Anybody interested, go to Amazon and Google ghettoopoly, and you'll see what that looks like. So part of it is, one, explaining to people that we all have a bias I think that's the beginning part of it is making sure people understand we all have it in different ways. So as a heterosexual, I have certain biases, right? And explaining that. So it's not about wasting time thinking if you have it or not. It's trying to figure out what is your bias and how is it impacting you personally and professionally? So I think when people get it from that space to begin with, that you're, you're going to do that because you're human, that's helpful. Because especially with racism, people think the only people who are racist are like the Klan and skinheads and stuff like that. That is not, that is not the case. And so I think that's important. Um, showing multiple examples is important. But I think the key thing is getting people to a point where they just have to decide if they think they know our experiences more than we know our experiences. So for example, I, I, give, a, I give an example of, I was playing a racquetball with my dad once and I slammed the ball right in his private section, like bam, nailed him. And he bent over and my dad's like six foot one. He, he's a big man. And I ran, I was like, daddy, daddy. And he's, um, 
He's like, don't touch me. My father, my parents are Jamaican. He's like, don't, don't. And so when I share this story, like usually if people identify as males that are in the audience, they're just like, oh, and I have two boys, right? And they're like, oh, and the way I'm just like, it looked like it hurt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, what? you don't, you can't even understand. And I could see that my dad was in pain and stuff, but I don't get it. I don't have, I just, I don't understand. I won't understand that. Right. I just have to trust that what he's saying is real and that, and my boys tell me, mom, you can, you cannot understand how pain, just, and that's why you don't even joke. Like if I pretend to hit somebody, they're like, don't even joke about that. It's not funny. Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of thing, right? Like, you have to trust that because of our identities, there are things that we go through that you're just never going to be able to get. So you have to decide if you're going to just trust that what I'm telling you is real. And when I tell it to you, I don't need you to say, really, are you sure? No, maybe they didn't mean it that way, right? Don't do that. It's like, you have to just believe that what I'm telling you is real. And so if you can do that, then it's really not important for you to be able to have that situation ever happen to you. You just have to believe that my experience is equitable to yours, right? And that has, I would trust my father to not touch him. When I tell you certain things, you have to just trust that. And it's the same thing for any movement. When women are talking about sexual harassment, right? You, I, you have to either decide we know what we're talking about or you don't, right? And nobody can make that determination for you. I don't know what it's like to walk around with white skin. I have no idea what that's, that's like. So I trust your experience with that. And you have to do the same for me. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, no, it, no, it does make sense completely. And I'd love to talk about what's going on with the George Floyd movement. And you know that you, you said some people are like jumping on the bandwagon. So yeah. are you noticed that you're getting a lot more businesses now? And a follow-up question to that. Um, I think we talked about this earlier, but our organizations, how do you know if they're doing this? for, I guess, the right reasons, yeah. but also just like either to make themselves look good because that's what's going on um, mm-hmm. in the media, or are they doing this to actually improve um, the workplace? Yeah, excellent question. I, I know that businesses is jumping up a lot. I actually had lost a lot of business due to COVID um, because I do stuff face to face. So many of us are having to pivot to kind of doing online, but yeah, there is a lot of people trying to, uh, say something because if you're a business or any kind of organization, if you're not saying something, then that's a problem for you. But then if you say the wrong thing, that's a problem for you. So people are scrambling in many ways. Um, I do think there's a group of people and businesses that are just doing it for performatory reasons. They're just going to put something out there with no real intent to really think about dismantling their system or just even analyzing and seeing where they need to work on some systemic, you know, anti-Black, anti-racism issues. The way that you can tell is if they're going to put their resources where their mouth is. So that means that they're willing to give up their time, their money, their staff to go through a process that's going to be for the longevity of their business. This is not a checkbox. This is not you doing one workshop and yay, we're good now. It is not that at all. So when you're engaging with businesses, it's part of, is this now part of their strategic plan? Is this part of their short and long-term goals? 
are they willing to put money towards this? You can't imagine how many people want you to do stuff for free, for example, or, you know, um, don't want to give their, their personnel the time that they need to do it. So a, a quick example would be educators. You know, if we're serious about educators really digging into this stuff, then they need to have more than one pro D, uh, every six months, right? So let's give teachers one less class. And so every week they have two hours free, right? To really dig into the work. That's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. For officers, you know, let's instead of, if they have a 12 hour shift, let's dedicate two of those hours where they're connecting with community and dealing with some real stuff. Instead of spending 400 hours on training on how to shoot a gun, which like 90% of them will never draw, for example, we instead, maybe they do, you know, 150 hours of that. And they do a hundred hours of learning how to deal with intercultural communication and understanding racism and bias, which is what they're more likely to encounter. Right. So it's, it really is about people making a decision to invest their time and their energy and their resources. So my thing is we'll see where people are at three months from now right? Like when the spotlight is off. Um, in the meantime, we can use this time as many of us in our communities are. And that's why so many of us are exhausted right now, because it's not just about what's out there, but within our community, that there's this door that's kind of open and we're all trying to get in and getting people to change and do things, especially for those who only want to put something out there, you know, for a moment. <laughs> so we're all taking the, op- the, ch- the, the opportunity right now to see if we can do some systemic changes. Um, but there's some people who really are trying to do some good things. A huge thing that just happened on Saturday, uh, the BCACC, which is the British Columbia Association of Clinical Counselors. I was in conversation with them last week. They said, you know, look, we want to do something. We want to put a statement out there, but we don't want to just put a statement. We want to put it out there with some concrete action. Mm-hmm. And so um, you can go to their website and that's exactly what they did. We talked about a couple couple of things and they are implementing this week three things. One, we now have a box to identify BIPOC counselors and Indigenous counselors, which we didn't have before. That's great. Second, now has part of your area of expertise, racism and racialized violence are now categories. So that's awesome. And third, they're now um, within their own internal organization. They have these community kind of groups for counselors. There's now going to be one for BIPOC counselors so we can talk to each other. That's amazing. That is amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And that just happened. So um, you can go to their website and take a look at that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's some incredible stuff. So we'll see. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And obviously with racism and stuff, it's always a continuous learning journey. Absolutely. With social media, as we've talked about before, there's just so much going on. There's so many messages and whatnot. So do you have any advice um, or maybe just any resources or people of my generation of where they can educate themselves, like the proper resources to to learn? Um, That is a great question. There is, I'm just making a note here. Um, well, you can go to my website and there is a section that says resources. I update that monthly, but I think this is where it really requires you all to do what you do best, which is, you know, going on the internet. Um, the example I'd like to use is 
something that in my workshops I use. My son had something called osteochondritis desiccans. Okay, uh, when he's a grade ten, it, it and he ended up having to be a wheelchair user for a while, and because of the surgery he had. Now, when I heard that, I asked people, "What do you think I did?" Right? I, I, I googled <laughs> exactly right. I googled it and I talked to people who you know are in the profession. Like, what is that to figure that out? And I did that because I love him and I wanted to know more about it and everything I could. So I took my time to really do the research and really kind of go through different, you know, websites, thinking critically, what makes sense, what doesn't, asking it. And so that's what I say to you all. If you're really serious about this, then you're going to go and find those spaces find what you're looking for. Is it that you're interested in finding out how to talk to friends who do racist jokes? Is it that you're trying to figure out how to get more of an insight into the way that minoritized people think? You know, what aspect are you interested in? Well, then go and dig into it because there is a whirlwind of things out there. The problem, I stopped giving people actual, just like say 10 things. And then they, because I found that people just checklist it and go, okay, I'm done. You know, Dr. G knows that. So that's all I have to do. And it's like, no, you need to be, you're on this freeway. That's part of your work. I can't drop, jump in the driver's seat for you and push on the gas, gas pedal. Right. Mm -hmm. I can be beside you and give you some suggestions, but you really have to do that yourself. So there are, um, one, a couple things I will say, right? Like the current Institute, um, they do an annual analysis on implicit bias for anybody who's really interested in that. Those are free PDFs and it's huge. And it goes across education and law and a bunch of different fields. And they've been doing it for years. So it's a kind of a, a compilation of a bunch of different resources and research that has been done. And they do it every year. And that's from the Ohio State University and it's the Kerwin Institute on Race and Ethnicity. Um, in Canada, Canada has done a variety of different things. They did a podcast a while back called Color Code, which looks at a variety of different racialized people. It's really kind of cool. I found um, really interesting stuff. And that might be something you might be interested in. In terms of current times, if you have young kids, Sesame Street, <laughs> they did something really cute talking about how to explain about you know, riots and, you know, some other things, you have to wade through some of it. Mm -hmm. But that might be interesting for those of you who have kind of younger persons. Mm -hmm. But I really say, you know, you all are the best for that. Who do you trust in terms of Instagram and looking at Twitter feeds and all of these things? Um, there are young people who are excellent at this, these issues, you need to find them. And once you find them, share that with people, but don't just, you know, do your research. Don't just look up somebody and kind of, that's it. You know, there are definite organizations across the country. And I would look not just in Canada, but in the United States as well. Um, I think that's really good. And one of my favorite shows right now is middle ground. It's a series on YouTube, I guess, Jubilee, it's young people. And they bring people of different sides to come together to hear each other. And I okay. find that very fascinating. Um, and you might find some of that interesting, like Black Lives Matter versus mm -hmm. those who don't like it, you know? Yeah, that's um, interesting. Hearing yeah. both, both sides, oh, that's really good. Yeah. And there's another one that um, I'm going to look up and put 
on my website because I can't, the title is escaping me right now, but it, it, it's a set of people and the questions that you should never ask. And they do different categories. And so they'll do like, don't ever ask a transgender person this, or don't ask black people this. And I find them wonderful and very interesting. Um, But yeah, that's another, another piece there. Um, The other thing I would suggest is something that was suggested by a professor out of the university of Toronto, and he calls it cognitive palate cleansing. That one of the things that you all do is, and not you, just you all in terms of your generation, but all of us, we get all of our information off of the web and we're kind of looking at it too much and it's starting to make people feel anxious and it can be overwhelming. And so he suggests kind of like how um, if you go to a fancy place for dinner, they give you like um, some sherbet after you eat your first thing, they give you sherbet to cleanse your palate. First time this happened to me, I did not know what the hell. I'm like, wow, <laughs> really? Why am I getting dessert? I haven't yeah. had my meal yet. I'm not even kidding. I was like, why are we eating dessert? And so he's like, no, you're supposed to eat it. Cleanse your palate. I'm like, why do I need to cleanse my yeah. palate? I've got water, like yeah. whatever. So it's the same idea that when you are just putting in all this information, you have to give your brain a break. Okay. So the suggestion is don't look at this stuff first thing in the morning. Don't look at it first thing at night, uh, last thing at night, right after you've taken on something very intense, like watching, say, George Floyd or something like that. Some of you may jump to, okay, I'm going to go for a walk now, or I'm going to do some yoga or something to clear my mind. Mm-hmm. He actually suggests that before you do that, instead you watch something else, like watch a comedy or, you know, listen to something else and then go for your walk okay. or then do your yoga. Because if not, it's still kind of, yeah. And so even though you're going through your walk, it's still kind of sitting there. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lisa. It was so great chatting with you. And I, I really think the skills that you have and um, what you're doing is applicable to so many other career paths as well. And yeah, so thank you so much for sharing those resources as well. I'll collect them all and share them, but I just really appreciate your time and it was great chatting with you. Thank you so much for reaching out. I so appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that was Dr. Lisa Gunderson. Thank you so much all for listening. I really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.